Hey, Straight Talk on Leadership listeners. This week's episode is a webinar conversation Dean hosts with some of the top leaders, sheriffs, and chiefs in the country. The discussion involves some tough questions that police and sheriff's offices are having to answer in light of the George Floyd tragedy. I hope you enjoy. And as we always say, sit back and get ready to change your life. Hi, I'm Dean Chris. Welcome to Straight Talk on Leadership. This is what we'd like to say is the no BS zone, where we give you leadership tips, ideas, and practical suggestions to help you become a top leadership performer. Our goal is simple, help you become the best version of yourself and reach your highest potential as a leader. So sit back, turn up the volume, and ready to change your life. Okay. Hey, thanks everybody. I really appreciate it. Kelly, thank you so much for that introduction to everybody. One thing I want to add about this webinar is these are not just panelists. These are friends of mine. These are people that I've actually either worked with or a matter of fact, I've worked with most of them. I've either worked with them or taught with them across this great country. And I think in terms of panelists, I am so pleased to have them today. I've been so excited all day to get this thing going. I could hardly stand it. I feel like a little kid and waiting for a little league game to happen. So you can go out and you get dressed early so you know in anticipation of what's going on. Folks, we are faced with one of the most difficult challenges that we have ever been faced with in law enforcement and certainly maybe even our nation's history. And so law enforcement plays a integral role in that. And what I wanted to do today was put together a panel of, of, of folks who have ideas, suggestions, input, and are actually on the front lines and see what's going on out there and give you those ideas and suggestions to help you deal with these issues. Literally, almost two weeks ago, a little more than two weeks ago, what I believe the hand grenade was pulled, the pin on the hand grenade was pulled on regular issues in this country. And when the death of George Floyd actually pulled the pin on it, and we've seen an explosion of that issue coming to bear all across our country. And it's causing, it's causing riots, it's causing protests, it's causing Black Lives Matter to take a more a prominent role in the everyday of police. It's talked about defunding police. We're talking about people who are showing up on the steps of our agencies and are who are actually forcing demands on our police departments and our sheriff's departments of things they want done. It's called, it's, it's a time for more transparency. Today, there's a bill out to take away qualified immunity for law enforcement officers. Folks, I don't know if you understand that, but that simply means, and all of you do, that when you're doing your job, you have the right to have qualified immunity and people can't sue you for just everything. Or if they do, it can be dismissed because you're doing your job. And there's a bill right now out there. And you talk about there's all kinds of issues that we're facing. Now, the way we want to do, and what, one of the things I understand about crisis is that crises tend to shine a really bright light on our weaknesses. They tend to show things that we don't normally see and they don't show things that we normally need to respond to or fix until we get a crisis. And I've asked these panel of folks, I've given them some questions I want to ask. And the way we're going to do today's format is I'm going to ask and talk about a series of questions that I'm going to put to them. And these are some of the ones that I've spoken to with people across the country about if you had a chance to ask somebody, you know, what would, what would you want to hear from? So I've got those list of questions and we're going to give each one of them a swing at it. And we're not going to, uh, you know, run this thing into the ground. But what we are going to do is give them a short uh, chance to, to explain this. 
what we're talking about, some of these relevant questions. Now you have the chat room. If you have a question you want us to answer uh, or ask, please write that down and we'll ask them that. Now we'll go as long as we need to go, but we understand these things after an hour or 90 minutes, uh, we'll try to keep it close to that timeline. So we got a lot to go, so let's get started right away. So panelists, again, thank you so much for being here today. What, what an honor to be amongst you folks. And you know, one of the things that I will say is this, in times that are tough like this, one thing that we tend to really look, not lose, and I'm not talking about we're not courageous people, but sometimes the courage to act, we flinch and we, we don't really see some of the things we need to do. So we want to get these panelists to help us today in our, in our courageous acts of leadership. There has never been a time that I have ever been a part of, even back in the Rodney King riot time. This is different. This literally pulled the pin, as I said before, on the hand grenade of race issues in our country. And we've got to be on the forefront of the solution. We cannot be reacting all the time to what's going on. And I'm going to ask one of my panelists in a minute, Alfonso, to talk about uh, dealing with crisis stuff. But we've got all kinds of great folks in here. Tom Smith, I'm going to ask him in a minute to talk about Minneapolis. He's right next door. He's the chief of police there. He's got some he's got some comments and, and things he knows about when they lost that precinct up there. So we got a great panel of group uh, panelists today. So thank you all so much. All right, let me let me run this first one by you here. You know, how do we in today's environment, how do we improve the police and the community interactions? Because right now they are absolutely like a powder keg. So I'm asking my panelists and whoever wants to go first, jump in. How do we improve police community relations? Police uh, what, and community interaction. Interactions. It's what I like to say, Dean. Thank you for having me. This is Alfonso Williams, Burke County Sheriff's Office. Uh, I, uh, I think you start by what I would say, and that is the cleanup starts before the crisis ever occurs. That is, the cleanup is relationship building, getting out into the community, getting to know one another, so that when we have some kind of crisis, we're not trying to get to know one another. We already have relationships. We already serve on multidisciplinary review boards. We've already been out in the community. We're, we're taking care of uh, the less fortunate kids at Christmas, turkey drives, Easter egg hunts. We do all of that stuff in the community. It's all that community building before something happens so that when you have a crisis, we're not trying to get to know each other and we're not unfamiliar with each other because much of what we're seeing across this country is just ignorance. We don't understand one another. We don't understand how one another live. And we keep getting into the ring and going into our own corners and we don't want to come together in the middle and mediate any of this. And we are mad about it, but we've got to stop letting movements move our profession. We talk about proactive policing and being and, and, and stopping the crime before it occurs, but we won't professionalize the profession. So movements like Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd March, the Aubrey Avery situation in Brunswick, uh, Rodney King, I was in the police academy the day of the, the Rodney King vert, uh, uh, video came out. Those movements are pushing us to do what we won't do ourselves. So, and I'm not speaking, we can't look at this singularly 
about the agency that we work for or the officers that we're familiar with. And we've got to stop this narrative that, well, most of us are good. That is true. Most of us are good. But there are so many of us out there that just don't have the tools, the resources, the funding, the the training, the the policies. I have a in in, in our area here. We have a state accredited, uh, state certified, and a nationally accredited agency that is well respected. But as you well know, the state certification standards and the national accreditation standards don't require body cameras. Why in 2020 would anybody have to say, put a body camera on the officer to protect him, to help him behave better, and to record the actions of violators so that we get away from this he said, she said stuff? Why does a movement like Black Lives Matter have to push us to that point? I mean, I, I hear you. I understand where you're coming from from that. So anybody else, take a swing here. Hey, Sheriff, uh, this is Hobart Lewis in Greenville County, South Carolina. Sheriff, I just want to hit on what you said. Uh, one of the first things we finally figured out to do, and it, it took several days to do it, but was to sit down with our officers who do fall under that umbrella of being a minority and tried to get a feel for what they felt like, you know, as we worked these marches and things were happening. Um, and I can tell you, it was an eye opener, you know, really to talk about their experience of who they've worked with before and where the real issues are. And nobody said anything. Um, everything that, that was brought up, there, there's no report, no internal investigation, no complaints ever made uh, because we were the first to say, hey, we don't have problems in Greenville, South Carolina. They have in Minneapolis. Uh, that doesn't happen here. We're good. You know, everybody just move on, keep doing what you're doing. But when we talk to our people inside the building that work here and wear this uniform and represent this agency and serve this community, we figured out that, you know, we do have some issues or they feel like we do from a hiring standpoint. Uh, what are we doing to put a focus on training people on how we should treat each other? Because once you come to work here, Everybody puts on that uniform, and now you're not only judged by by your race or your size or your age or your experience. You're judged because now you got on a, a police uniform, a law enforcement uniform. You represent something really getting to the surface of it, scratching through it, and, and trying to figure out what we can do better. Uh, do we need to bring somebody in from outside to help us get a broader view of it, or, or how do we look at it? I think on a small scale, if we can fix what's going on inside our building, I believe that'll go outside these walls into the community. Certainly not going to fix it overnight, but it's a step in the right direction. We've already talked to the, the noisemakers, you know, the, the activists that are always on TV. We brought them in and talked to them, but we didn't do anything to talk to our people inside. And uh, for the past couple of days, it's, it's been a huge eye-opener for me. So Hobart, you're, you're saying have an internal conversation with your people. Tom, Ann, any, anybody else on the panel want to jump in there? You know, Dean, um, number one, thank you to you and Kelly. Leaders Helping Leaders Network does a fantastic job to bring people together to talk about these real topics. And coming from an individual, I still work with FBI Lita, so I know some of the people on this call or they've been in our classes together before. I work for Quantico Police Training and do a little work with the Police Executive Research Forum still 
So I travel all over the country. And the one thing, whenever asked this question, I say, and some of you on this call have heard me in classrooms for FBI Lita, and that is the bank of trust. Every single officer from the chief and sheriff all the way down to the lowest level and from the lowest level all the way up to the chief have an opportunity to put credit in the bank of trust every single day. And I will tell you that the bank of trust is one of the most important things. I kind of coined that when I still was chief in St. Paul with my officers because what I have viewed throughout the country after what happened up here in the Twin Cities and specifically in Minneapolis is this. Departments that have a culture of bank of trust where they're working with their community, they may have still had protest, but they didn't have the rioting, the looting, and the officers being assaulted as much as other agencies that maybe are in, they're in a deficit right now or they have not um, put as much effort or they're, they're in the process of putting more credits in the bank of trust. So I just, the bank of trust and culture are two big things and I'll end with this just like I do right before we break for lunch in any kind of training venue. I always tell everybody from, again, chiefs and sheriffs all the way to FBI agents, when you go out to lunch, and if like Mac, you might remember, we went to lunch together a couple times when I was in Columbia. A lot of people were sporting um, their badges or, or a logo on their shirt. You've got an opportunity every single time you go someplace to put a credit in the bank of trust. I don't care who you are. Because you've got young people, and that's the group, the Generation Z, that protested heavily during this um, terrible 12, 14 days. You've got an opportunity to reach out and make a difference with somebody. And just that one second will make a difference in somebody's life. So, again, I made it kind of simple. It's a longer answer than that. But the bank of trust and putting those credits in for when bad things like this happen, just between St. Paul and Minneapolis. Total difference in what has happened up here. And I've been advising and, and talking to the chiefs of both major cities and our commissioner of public safety since this has happened. Um, uh, the cultures make a difference. And you want to chime in there? You want to say anything before I move on to the next question or, or Mac? Yeah, um, I will just briefly in principles. Something, frankly, I've learned by watching you, Dean, through the years, uh, sitting in classrooms, um, this is a true crisis, as you said, and one of the things I've tried to learn is that this is an opportunity for y'all to embrace this storm. Don't run from it. If you run from this storm, you are going to be, you're weak. You got to be mindful that every single one of your staff are watching you. They want to see some strength of character. Resist trying to say things that will scratch itching ears that activists want to hear. But you should listen to what they have to say, as well as your own members. Uh, this is not a time for platitudes, uh, but embrace the storm and be re reflective and not respond. Do not react. If you make decisions during this storm, uh, you're going to, uh, but I, I will say this. You must get comfortable with the uncomfortable conversation about race and it has to be had. So those are just some principles that I have tried to live by and I've learned them from listening to webinars, being a part of classrooms. This is the time to anchor 
what principles are you going to make your decisions by? Good stuff. Matt, you want to add anything yeah. before we move forward? Yeah, from Columbia, South Carolina, I'm, I'm Captain Marsh from Columbia, South Carolina, Columbia PD, for everybody that's on the call. Uh, I, I echo everything that's been said. It, it is a great thing um, that we're having this, and we really appreciate you pulling this together there, Chief. One thing I would like to add is I learned in my career when I had the opportunity to be a part of a community team that went out and we were one-on-one on one, one on one with the community and we had our own communities assigned to us. Is what, the, what I always like to tell my officers is make those contact on good days. When those, when those community members are having good days, those are times you deposit that into that bank of trust. And don't just make it about the bad days and when they're having a problem, you're showing up. So I was always an advocate of, of making those contact on the good days. And throughout my career to this day, even though I'm not assigned to those particular regions, I go by there and I visit my bank of trust on a regular basis. Mike, I appreciate that. Thank you, all the panelists, for the answers. Now, you know one of the things we discussed, this is not some kind of softball kind of podcast or not some kind of softball kind of webinar. These are issues. We have got people that are hurting, getting hurt. We've got cops. Their morale is low. We've got a lot of issues that are we're facing. So I'm going to throw a tough question out there, and I want you to get ready for it because uh, people want to know the answer to this. Well, there's been a lot of our police leaders across the country. We've seen them taking a knee. We've seen them uh, saying Black Lives Matter. We've seen them do all those things that when you talk about culturally in our organizations, those are a little foreign to us. When we talk about protesters kneeling before protesters, I'm going to ask you a question. So how do you maintain the morale in your agency when you yourself are taking a knee with protesters, what message do, does that send internally? But also, how do you maintain the morale of some officers who believe that you're lowering yourself to the pressure of what the protesters want? Now, that's a tough question, but we want real answers from you. Whoever. Dean, I just wanted to say, and that is a great question for all of us, and I, and I think that uh, uh, Sheriff Alonzo, you, you spoke a little bit about that in your opening statements, but let me give you this, what's really happening up here in the Twin Cities, okay, between St. Paul and Minneapolis, and maybe this will help to answer some of this for, for the people that are on the call. Chief Todd Axtell took over from me as the chief of the St. Paul Police Department, and within an hour of that video hitting the national media of George Floyd being murdered, um, he sent out a department-wide email. And, and I know, Dean, you and I talked about this a little bit. And I want to tell you what he said to his troops. Now, remember, he had already set the tone. He's been the chief for four years there. We actually came on the job together. I, I know him very well. We just spoke the other day. I, spoke, I reached out to the Minneapolis chief yesterday. But Todd Axtell said this to every employee in the St. Paul Police Department. He said, if you have not watched the video yet of that arrest, we want, or that murder, we want, I want you to all watch that video. And if you watch that video and you don't find something wrong with it, I want you to turn your badge in to me tomorrow. Now that's inside baseball. Nobody else knows really a whole lot about that. And then all of a sudden it took off. You can actually get on CNN or YouTube and you'll hear Chief Axtell talk about that directly to the country that he told his people you know what, if you don't see something wrong with what happened, then you need to turn in your badge. That bodes back to your first question about culture, putting credits in the bank of trust. And you know what, the leaders in this and today, um, 
are changing things. And we know, by the way, that a lot of people are mad with all of us up here in the Twin Cities because we are the touchstone, right? This was a perfect storm. Um, after people being locked up with COVID-19, then you have this incident happen. People want to get out. Um, they're doing all sorts of different things. Um, but I will tell you that uh, I thought that was very powerful what Chief Axtell said. Then finally, what Chief um, Arandando has said, and you can, um, I, I suggest to all your uh, participants here today to get uh, to Google Chief and see his press conference yesterday. Um, you want to talk about a leader under unbelievable pressure from every single entity you can think of, any of us on this call. And I will tell you, he was cool, calm, and collected. Um, he has divested himself from the police union. He did that yesterday. We'll no longer negotiate with them. He believes that's a hindrance to, to what they need to do uh, with the Minneapolis Police Department. And today, you can actually get on the Star Tribune. That's our local paper. And you will see the majority of Minneapolis police officers today actually wrote a letter basically kind of apologizing to the country, um, but also saying that they did not support the uh, actions of the four officers uh, that have been taken into custody, specifically Officer Chauvin. So, uh, so, so what I'm hearing you say is leaders take a stand, be courageous, and lead no matter, do the right thing for the right reason at the right time in the right way. Do those things and stand on it. That helps the internal morale of the organization. I love it. Great answer. Anybody else? Chime in. Help us. I, I'm going to chime in. As many of you will know, I was with Oakland, California. So uh, the other week, and I've only been gone from Oakland for about 12 weeks. So I saw t over t about 24 of our officers on the scrimmage line take a knee. Um, it was a little bit divisive internally in the department. There were a lot of officers who thought they shouldn't have done that. There were a lot of officers who thought that they should. And the question is, is it right? Is it wrong? I think one of the, for me, again, a guiding principle is, was it sincere? And was it authentic? Was it an expression that was truly authentic for them? I've also been watching a lot of chiefs who have politic there bending their knee they were just it was not really genuine it didn't seem appropriate when they were not genuine it was more to just kind of it, it took away it, it was a platitude versus a real expression i think in the end it's a personal decision and as long as you are authentic in your expression but I think there needs to be some kind of expression. It goes kind of back to these issues. Should a chief ever apologize? Uh, they're the same parallel issues of principle. So uh, right or wrong, you will have to make that decision. And right or wrong, but be sure you're authentic. Can't say it better than that. I mean, that's pretty good. Al, you you guys, uh, Hobart, uh, Mac? I think, I think Ann brings up a great point about being authentic. But here, uh, what happened, it became uh, uh issue of what kind of message did it send? Symbolically, what did it do? Because half our community said nobody should do that. And the other half said they should. They thought it was great. Inside the agency, uh, our people did not feel good about it at all. 
we have a adjoining uh, sheriff's office that was very defiant and said, you know, he would absolutely not do that. And he's here to enforce the law. Then you have another sheriff on the other side of our county who did do that uh, and was criticized pretty harshly. So now it didn't last long. You know, it only it only lasted maybe a couple of days. They were talking about it and then they moved on to something else. But the repercussions at the agency for the men and women uh, goes all the way back to what Alfonso said earlier. And we were talking about inside the agency and communicating with people. Is it authentic? Why did you take a knee? What were you thinking? Uh, there was a chief, uh, I think it was a chief that laid on the ground, put his hands behind his back. It made the Today Show, all the morning shows. Webster, uh, Massachusetts, I believe. Yeah, highly, highly criticized in our part of the country, uh, especially, you know, obviously in a, inside the agency. We we work in the same building with a with our city agency. So we got about a thousand people in here that we can talk to and get a feel for. But until we started talking to them, sometimes we do things we think is right without thinking about the repercussions of the people who are watching in your league. Uh, and that's probably been our biggest struggle. Again, is everything I do is reflective on the 617 people that work directly for me and they're going to get criticized for anything I do. So I think everybody has tried to tiptoe through this process. Um, again, have we prepared to clean up before the, before the, the mess happened? Uh, we would have been more prepared, but nobody saw this coming from the COVID-19 issue and everybody being locked down for 90 days. And then all of a sudden everybody gets freed up a little bit and, and this happens uh, with the George Floyd issue. So everybody did have that pent up anger and energy and, and they were ready to use it somewhere. Uh, but everybody's looking to every agency head and whatever we do, um, you know, obviously you're not going to make everybody happy, but are you authentic when you do it? And how are you going to explain it to your people? Cause you're going to have to answer some tough questions uh, every day you walk into the building. So it's a, it's a lot to think about. Certainly a lot for me personally to digest as we, as we go through this on a daily basis. And I've got another tough question since I want to give Mac uh, and Al uh, a chance. There's a, so hold on. We got tougher questions coming. So get ready. Al. Yeah, I, I think uh, what uh, Sheriff Hobart said uh, about taking care of inside the agency before we try and go out and, and uh, take care of our communities. What a profound thought. And I'm certainly going to have that conversation now that I've been on this podcast with folks inside my agency. It never dawned on me that I needed to do that, although I've been ahead of three agencies now. And I always believed in cleaning up inside because depending on how you lead from the inside, those folks will take your leadership style, good or bad, out into the community. But I have never considered bringing our officers together black and white and brown and, and and talking to them about how they feel about what's going on across the country. And then we are able to go talk to activists and, and to go out and be a part. So I, I'm certainly going to steal that and, and use that um, as I move forward. That's awesome. Mac? Dean? Yes, go ahead, Tom. I just want to clarify one thing because since you asked this question and we've got a lot of different answers from the sheriffs and the panelists, you know, Chief, Chief Rondo up in Minneapolis really was 
the touchstone to kneeling. He actually kneeled um, when we had this service here for George Floyd in Minneapolis as the hearse and the family went by. I will tell you that was completely legitimate. Um, Chief uh, Rondo is a sincere person. This has hurt him and, and, and all his good officers to a core. They're under a microscope. Um, you know, 900,000 police officers in, in this country are upset at what happened in Minneapolis, but it was sincere. And he also is the first African-American uh, chief of police uh, for the Minneapolis Police Department in their history. So I just want to clarify that. And, and I'm going to come to you in a minute uh, because I want you to address an issue. I, I, I don't know of anybody, anyone across the country who has dealt with an issue that you had to deal with regarding an issue that um, – so, so in a minute, be ready. I'm going to come to you with a with a tough one, but I know you can handle it. But we want to hear because you have specifically dealt with issues that we're going to be talking about here in just a minute. Mac, you want to say something before we move on? Uh, the only thing I would like to add is, as we all know, in this business, communication is the key. Uh, just to kind of mirror what everybody said, you have to communicate with our officers. You have to have that dialogue, and um, that that's the only thing that's going to move us forward. If if we can open up to our own our own folks within our agency will help us open up to the community as well. Okay. So I'm going to ask you that this, these are about, you know, this panel and this webinar is about challenges. This panel and webinar is about helping everyone that's listening and at, that will listen on our podcast and that will see the replay of this to help them deal with the issues in their agency. And, to, and honestly, we've got to understand something too. We have a great deal across this great country, our officers are hurting too. This is not something that they're in a vacuum. Our officers are hurting during this period of time. I heard Max say something yesterday when we were talking about preparing for this. And he said something that I don't think a lot of people understand this. or And it really dawned on me yesterday when Max said it. We were talking about tactics that were, uh, that, how do you deal with tactics? And there, there's a new day. They were having their own police scanners. They were, I mean, they were very well prepared. But Max said something yesterday that really made me pause for a moment and think. And I think our officers are hurting, but think about this. He said that when they decided to release gas on, uh, when they burned police cars in Columbia a week ago, he said he saw the pain in his police chief and he saw the pain in his mayor when they made the decision to finally gas the people and the protesters, I mean, the honest truth are those people there that they're gassing are your people. They're absolutely people within your community. They're people who are out taking a stand and they're calling for justice and we're pushing the gas on them. Now, I'm not saying not do it. I'm just simply saying that when police officers are gassing people, those are people. And we got to understand our officers are dealing with those issues that are, man, they're tough. And uh, this is a time for leadership to have these conversations with people to understand, yeah, you might be gassing those people, but honestly, those are our people. Now, some of those are outside protesters. I get that. Some of those are people that whatever, but there's going to be collateral damage when you gas people and you shoot rubber bullets and you do all those things. Those are our people. Mac, you want to address that for just a minute uh, about that? Because you, you witnessed it. Sure. And I'm going to tell everybody, it is a very, very hard decision. I'm sure most of the, the um, command staff or upper echelon of the police department sitting on this call um, know that that is a very tough decision to make because you're looking at those folks that you have that bank of trust with. 
uh, folks that you're going to see in the community. I mean, I looked out in the sea of folks and, and I recognized a bunch of them. And it, it, it is a very hard decision to make and to watch it grow on, on my leadership that I, I was able to, to have a fortunate um, chance to be there when those decisions were made. Uh, it's a true thing and it's not something just, you know, haphazardly somebody just goes, well, we'll just deploy it and let's move on. No, that's, that's a very hard decision to make. And I, I know in my time in the city of Columbia, we have never been faced with that type of situation where we had to do that. And, you know, I even felt, I even felt anxious about it because, you know, I'm, I'm putting these officers in these, this harm, what in, in harm's way. And, you know, they're having the same questions I'm having. So, it, you know, it's not what, what most community would think that, you know, we're, that we're just hardened and, you know, we'll do whatever. No, that's, that stuff takes a, that's, that's a hard decision to make. And it, it was rough to watch that decision come through. And, and I want to mention something here. Max said something that I want you to think about for a minute. Gas has not probably not been deployed in Columbia since the late sixties <laughs> or the seventies. I mean, you think about that. This is not people who have seen this before. This is people who the, this is their first foray into interaction with police. And, I mean, these are these are things that we need to be thinking about as police leaders that, yes, that occurred, but that will be indelibly in everybody's mind for their entire career. And and we got to think about those things for our cops, too. And uh, and I think when Ann mentioned the fact of authenticity and being authentic and all those things, these are discussions you got to have. So I'm turning it over to the panelists. Go ahead. Help me out here. I think part of our problem sometimes, uh, Dean, is is you're, you're in. Sometimes you just got to make a decision, and you got to do what you think is right and what you think is best. And when you send a message more concerned, and and please don't misunderstand me here. Let, hear me out for a second. When you spend, it's almost like the traffic stop where you spend. 30 seconds talking about your probable cause for pulling them over and five minutes talking about whether or not you have drugs in the car. It, it just gives an impression that, that uh, you're predisposed to believe the person is a drug dealer. When you spend more time, when these chiefs, when these leaders are spending more time talking about looters go home instead of denouncing the bad behavior, you send a message that it's okay and you can't try I, I i know i understand that that chiefs are too concerned about keeping their jobs and so they're scared to make a decision or the, or the council has shut them up or 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 they're hiding behind some three-piece suit mouthpiece that's some lawyer who said don't say this or do say that i've just decided as a sheriff good bad or ugly I'm, I'm in a county that uh, is about half black, half white, half Republican, half Democrat. And Dean, you've been here. You know that the uh, Republican base supports me 100%. They know that I'm no nonsense. I'm not going to take any looting and burning and acting a fool. But also, we could have had a very volatile situation this past Saturday where a girl posted on Facebook that they were going to come and protest. And it was very specific about where they were going to start and they were going to go to the police station and take a rest and a water break and then burn it down and then go to the courthouse and block off the streets and sit in the middle of the road. And and they said they'd burn down the courthouse and 
and and and some of our leaders called in the SWAT team and extra backup, and we had all this stuff ready to go. And I I walked in and I said, "Have we uh, ordered pizza and Gatorade and water?" And they said, "What do we need that for?" And I said, "My mother used to say, when they throw stones, feed them bread." And uh, I said, "Has has anybody reached out to this girl that made the Facebook post?" I mean, everybody in town was going nuts. Businesses were calling me saying, should I bring my guns? Can we line up with you? We're going to stand with the police. And I said, no, what I need you to do is stay at home. We've got your business. We've got your back. You stay home. We don't need that here. And 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 when I, I made five phone calls and I was able to get the girl on the phone. And when I said to her, will you just go to my face? Will you go to your Facebook page and take down that post immediately? I'm going to give you five minutes to do that. And then I want you to go read my stance on Minnesota and read my stance on Brunswick, Georgia. And I'll give you 30 minutes to do that. And then I'll call you back. And in the meantime, I'm going to order some pizza and Gatorade and some water for us. And I want you to bring your protesters down and let's sit down and have a meeting. And I disarmed her. And and they didn't show up. And we didn't have any protesting and we haven't had any since. We've had two peaceful gatherings to come together as a unified body. But we had all the helmets and the riot batons and the shields. And the, we had loaded, we had gassed up the transport vans. And, and we had the SWAT team who was mad as hell and ready to take action. And, and, and I'm telling you this, Dean, in 30 minutes, 30 minutes, I had 22 business people call to either say, I'm going to spend a night in my business with a gun or we'll stand with you on the street and prevent these out-of-town looters from coming in. And it's all this rhetoric from this these 24-hour news cycles, and I don't care if you're listening to CNN or Fox News, they're all concerned about the bottom line, which is making money. But if we don't stop getting into the ring and then going into our individual corners and refusing to come to the center with some kind of mitigation, we're going to continue to see these things happening. Mm-hmm. No, no doubt about it. And and now uh, Alfonso uh, had an election yesterday and he had uh, 85% of the vote. Now you see why. So when you look at that, Alfonso has a very aggressive, some of the agencies and some of the folks, uh, uh, you know, they have these larger venues and there's a lot of people showing up and things get out of control really quickly. So I think, but relationships matter. And that's, that's the point you're making is relationships matter. So anybody else want to chime in on that? Because I'm going to go to a really tough question now, because these are conversations we need to have with ourselves and our police leaders. We need to have these questions and we need to talk about them. So are you, if you're ready for the next one, I'll lay the next one out. You want me to talk about, uh, the third precinct or will that come yeah, up? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, well, yeah, I'll be glad to. Tom, you want to talk about that before I go to the next question? Yeah, you know, because I'm sure a lot of the participants probably want to know what, what happened there. And and um, literally that, that garnered a lot of emotions from law enforcement officers all throughout the country. Um, I've got a little experience in, in, in large things because in 2008, uh, St. Paul was the smallest major city to host a Republican national convention and we arrested 700 people during that time but to all the other panelists uh, for what they said 
we had relationships with a lot of the peaceful protesters um, before that happened. And that helped us tremendously to be able to um, separate and differentiate between good and bad. But a lot of people want to know about the third precinct up in up in Minneapolis and how that came to be, because that was something that has split a lot of people in law enforcement, not only here in the Twin Cities, but in different places. So the third precinct was just blocks away from where George Floyd, uh, the incident occurred. And, you know, for the first night, uh, they 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 made sure that that precinct was safe. Um, but for the first night of protests, Minneapolis had three or four different major uh, areas in their city, and they were starting to run out of uh, uh, help. They had a call from mutual aid. I know St. Paul Police Department on the first night sent 40 of our own officers over there to assist, same with State Patrol. On day two, when things really got bad, I will tell you inside baseball, there are a lot of people, and I'll be careful what I say, but a lot of people that were calling for the National Guard already on day two, come in, hold the perimeters, stop traffic from driving into these hot areas and let police officers do their job. They weren't there to, like the president talked about, federal police. This is just our National Guard. Didn't happen right away. The requests went in. So the third precinct all of a sudden becomes this hot zone. And people were throwing Molotov cocktails. They, they were doing all these different things. And, and Mayor Jacob Fry from the city of Minneapolis decided that he felt as though there could be loss of life on both sides if he um, tried to hold the third precinct. Now, I will tell you, knowing a lot of officers up here and having a lot of relationships with, trusting relationships with people, that didn't sit well with some individuals. Chief Rondo finally made the decision after talking to the mayor to get vans in, to pull all his officers in, out of there, and to leave, and try to get as much of their equipment out as possible. But here's what he said, and you can watch this on his press conference yesterday. He knew that because of the protesters were getting close to getting inside that building, that that wasn't going to end well for anybody. I think we can all on this call agree with that. Um, and he also felt as though there would be a loss of life. So he supported the mayor at that time, decided not to argue about it. That was not a time for arguing anyway. And he pulled his officers and they literally destroyed and, and, and looted what was left of the third precinct. But I wanted to get that out there that, you know, politics played a big role in, in this. Um, the politics in Minneapolis are different in St. Paul. Their, their chief has, um, uh, very tied to what the mayor says, St. Paul, we've got a charter where the chief has a lot more authority. That doesn't matter. Had to make a difficult decision. They made that decision. Um, and, uh, a lot of officers were upset by that. I'll just, I'll leave it with that. But I wanted to get that out there because, um, I, I got a hunch that some people wondered, how did we give up a police, um, station? Um, most people have not seen that before. And, and I think that resonated throughout the country uh, because it, it is not common in situations where you just abandon, uh, you know, a city building or any building that's a particular police station. But you're seeing it in Seattle now with they literally abandoned City Hall. And they, abandoned, uh, they abandoned a precinct about two miles from here where I live. And uh, now they're tr and, and then the activists came in, set up their own barriers. They pulled all the cops out. And so they've set up like this revolutionary zone 
and uh, they're trying to develop their own leadership of revolution to take over uh, the city hall and city government, and they took over the city hall. So this is just two miles from where I live, where I sit at during this meeting. Um, I mean, you know, those are things that are unprecedented that we haven't seen, and, and, it, and it shows the, the urgency in which yeah. police leaders have to act and what we've got to do. And, and Tom, like you said, uh, sometimes police leaders are handcuffed by yeah. political decisions, Absolutely. by political Absolutely. leaders who will actually Absolutely. come in and say, yeah, I mean, and, and you look at that, that's just, that's part of the nature of the beast. And sheriffs, sometimes they don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about that. You're elected. But right. but chiefs like me, uh, if your mayor says, this is what I want, you have to decide. You're going to keep your job over or are you willing to, to lose your job over? And, and it's real easy to say those things. I lost my job over it. Uh, overtaking stands and you just gotta, you, you better figure out oh, no, I, I, you are going to be. And, and I think one of the things I want to say about this too, is that in crises times, and I said this earlier, in crisis periods of time, weaknesses are going to be seen. So if you're a leader, you need to make your preparation. Now, uh, every day you should see the world as a crisis period of time and what can potentially happen. And I think, one of the things we're going to learn from this, and I always teach this in crisis leadership, is don't waste a good crisis. We need to understand our leadership needs to be as strong as it's ever been. And it, it, it has to be more positive. We have to tell our officers, this is not your dad's and mom's 1960 police department. Correct. Things have changed right before your eyes. You have probably never witnessed the changes that are occurring, not only in law enforcement, but in the world. The, because of technology, because of the abundance mindset with everybody, they think and people believe they're free to do whatever they choose to do. That is not the case. We have to be leaders during this period of time. Now, I'm going to yeah. ask you guys a question to panel. Now, you get ready. It's going to be a tough one. So I'm going to warn you ahead of time. You might want to think before you answer this question, but I'm sure we got a lot of leaders out there who are really wanting to hear this answer, and I do too myself personally, is how in the world do we answer the question, do we support do you support Black Lives Matter? And, you know, that's a question every single one of us, whether it be in an active protest, whether it be by taking a knee, our officers see that when we take a knee, we're actually in support of Black Lives Matter. And now there's a total difference between that statement of Black Lives Matter versus the organization of Black Lives Matter. But nobody asks you that. So I'm asking you, when you are asked, how do our people respond? If a news reporter had you right now in front of you and they said, do you support Black Lives Matter? What would you tell our police leaders out there? All right, folks, here we go. I think you, what, 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 you say, what you'd say is anybody that is concerned with bringing awareness to how a group of people have been made to feel disenfranchised when you're trying to heal a country or a group of people, when you're, look, and I've heard this said, black folks have marched and rapped and sang and chanted and yelled and screamed and hollered about injustices. And we spend more time worrying about whether or not we're going to let a damn precinct burn. That's part of the problem. And, and so where's the leadership? 
get every chief in the in the nation to come together and stand and say, we hear you. We finally hear you. We agree with you that we need some national standards. I'm not asking for a national police force, but we need some national standards. We need psychological assessments for our police, not just at the time they're hired, but after a traumatic incident. They experience PTSD as well. We need the same respect that you give to teachers and economists and doctors and lawyers. Somehow police don't get that because we won't professionalize ourselves. We wait on movements like Black Lives Matter to push us. And now we hear the term defund police departments and we're more pissed off about that than we are the injustices. And, 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 and but then everybody it makes it a partisan issue. It's not Democrat versus Republican. After 9-11, you had all the congressmen go stand on the, on the congressional steps and, and, and they're all together. And that lasted about as long as some of these other situations will last. And, and to be honest with you, Dean, I'm being very frank about it. I'm just sick of us playing around. Lives are at stake. All lives matter. But if we draw to our corners of the ring and we hold fast to our positions, it, I don't care what you're going to fix in this country. If it's racism, if it's bigotry, if it's ignorance, if it's poverty, if it's homelessness, it's all through education. Understanding why your brother feels the way he feels and, and, and getting to, to see from his point of view what this is all about. We want to talk all about, well, these people are just capitalizing on an opportunity. I agree, you're going to have two or three that are going to capitalize on an opportunity to steal. But there's a bigger systemic issue that we need to deal with so that we don't even get to the looting. Well, I agree with you, Al. And, and one of the things that I, I'm going to, I'm going to use Hobart here and I see you're muted Hobart. So I'm going to come to you in just a second. And you were in the, the midst of the crowd there in Greenville. And I, and I, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. They were saying, take a knee, take a knee, Black Lives Matter or whatever it was or, and, I know your response, what you did. You you want to talk about that kind of in that moment, like that was kind of a moment you probably will never forget as a leader. And so can you help our folks here and just kind of some of your experiences with that? Sure. Um, and, and one of the things uh, the sheriff just said in talking about that, we have tried to define what Black Lives Matter means to several people in our community and within the building. And it's amazing how many different versions of that you get, uh, and what their what their message they're sending um, really is. So, so we found that to be very unique. But, um, and, and I say that, and part of this answer is because when uh, a week and a half ago, almost two weeks now, I was downtown, and uh, I thought that it'd be a good idea uh, to get out and, and talk to the crowd and, and walk around and do some things and. What we had originally done is laid out the guidelines and said, okay, you're marching from point A to point B. You're starting at this time. You're ending at this time. Any variance of that, um, we had about 1,200 people. Any variance of that, you'll be in violation of the law, and we'll, you're putting us in a position to have to act on it. So as things started getting a little out of hand and people were grouping up, I decided I would go down there and, uh, and start talking to the leaders again 
so I I did, and and a lot of people know me now that may not have known me several months ago, and uh, and had you know kind of recognized me. So I found myself surrounded by about 500 people, and uh, couldn't see couldn't see any officers, couldn't see any deputies, and and they had where I was standing, the whole crowd just kind of did a shift. Um, and I found myself in the middle of them and, and they asked me to speak. So I grabbed the bullhorn and, uh, and began to speak and they started chanting, you know, take a knee, take a knee, take a knee. Um, and every time I would try to say something, they just got louder and nobody could hear what I was saying because they were chanting so loud. Uh, and I realized I was trapped. Now, what do I do? I've been put into a situation where somebody is fixing to force me to be authentic. Like Ann said earlier, uh, this is one of those kind of defining moments. So I could, I could not take a knee and turn that crowd against me. And all of the deputies, all the officers, because I didn't know how they would feel about it. Um, they would, how, how are they going to feel? Like, am I giving up on them and being submissive to the crowd, not just the cause? Uh, because we had already denounced what happened to George Floyd. There, there was no question, but uh, this was about beyond that. This was about more than that. So um, I decided that to to see where I was at, because, again, I, I had been kind of surrounded there, uh, and how I'm going to get out of this mess, and who's, who needs to know where I am, too. I said, uh, if you take a knee, I'll take a knee, and I'll pray with everybody here. So... Uh, that was as authentic as I could be because I, I didn't, I didn't believe in what the protest had turned into. I was against George Floyd and you, you can't explain that. And, um, and in that moment, um, I had knelt down, they knelt down with me, the majority of them. Some of them were still shouting and screaming, you know, about police stuff or whatever. Uh, so I began to pray with them and, and just kind of look around the crowd and, and everything got really quiet. And, um, I was praying through this loudspeaker and it was that several people took a picture and it wound up in the paper and it wound up on the news and it, it wound up defining how things went for that protest. Uh, and I had no idea, to be honest, it would even take off. This was early on for us. So we were catching some news media stuff. This was the first day of the first protest we had. The second day we wound up kind of trying to, to march alongside of them and out front of them and, and that kind of thing. Um, but it was a, it was a humbling experience, but at the same time, it was, uh, it created a, a lot of controversy here. Um, you know, I would say probably, and I don't know because they're not going to tell you the truth being in, in an administrative position, but I would say 70% probably disagreed with it and 30% probably agreed. Um, and it took days not to have to explain it, but just to kind of work through it, um, because nobody here ever asked me why they either agreed with it or, or disagreed. So uh, long after the protest was over, it was, um, and, and I, I never would have defined it as, as trying to be authentic. I was trying to do what I, what I thought mm -hmm. my kids would want to see to be quite honest at the time. I, I knew my kids, were, you know, probably watching this, it was on live TV or live streamed. And, um, but it, it did wind up being authentic. So it's unique that Ann would bring that word up. And, uh, and really be so profound for me and what we experienced. Um, I, I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. I don't know if, you know what, maybe maybe kneeling in that situation and praying, maybe that was a cop out on my part too. You know, maybe that was a way to not 
condone what was happening, but it was a way for an escape and me to deflect what they were really asking me to do. Um, I, I don't know emotionally, spiritually, mentally, you know, how I'm going to find that. Uh, well, but I, but I do know you, Hobart, and I know that in that moment, you're certainly going to show raw emotions to people. And I think that that sometimes, you know, police chiefs and leaders are going to be put in situations where you're, you're going to have to make a really quick decision on taking a stand. And that's what defines leadership, you know? And, and I think personally for me, I was impressed with what you did because you took a holistic approach to it, but an authentic one from your own personal perspective. Now, I do think what Al said is true. Uh, we have to have an honest dialogue. We've got to say when somebody asks that question, you know, that's a tough one. You know, do you support Black Lives Matter? Well, of course, we all support every life mattering. But the second you said that, they didn't want to hear that. They want to say, do you really understand the social injustice that we're dealing with and, I, and our community is dealing with versus, you know, what you deal with? And, and that's a that's a tough question. Tom, you and Ann. Uh, Mac, uh, let me hear what you got to throw out there. I will tell you, Dean, that, um, you know, even when I was still the chief, um, we had a relationship with Black Lives Matter. And I started with our black ministers. um, And it was not real popular with all of our officers at first. And some of you may remember, we had a big uh, protest of about 400 people that marched peacefully at our Minnesota State Fair in 2015. But a lot of you will remember this. I talk about it in my classes. Pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon. That came from that protest. It was literally about five people from Black Lives Matter um, that said that, where 395 people did not. Here's my take on all of this. You know, we got to have relationships with everybody right now. It's more important than any other time in our country. Um, for for the departments and, and everybody on this call, regardless what rank you are, uh, where you work right now, we all have to develop those relationships. Scott, if somebody asked me, do I support Black Lives Matter? And I'll tell you, I've had one of my own um, children, adult children, march with Black Lives Matter. Um, but here's what I would say. You have to have a relationship with them. I know that we've helped them march um, in our city before and kept them safe from people that didn't like Black Lives Matter. So again, let's not lose sight of who we are in this profession. You know, our job is to uphold um, democracy. And, and that I know of, democracy is for everybody, the 350 million people that live in this country. Um, sometimes it's really difficult. Did I like at first back in 2013 trying to develop a relationship with an organization that was very splintered, was tough to figure out who the leader was or the leaders were for Black Lives Matter and who were always seem to be anti-police it was tough. I'm human, but it was the right thing to do. And it stopped major issues in our city. And once our officers saw that, they understood, hey, we've got to, again, that bank of trust, you got to talk with everybody. So whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's a right wing group, if you've got an opportunity to to um, talk with people, by the way, that also stops and we can arrest the people that are really bad actors. Uh, because people trust us enough to come forward and give us that information. So that's well, kind there, of- well, the, well, there's one thing for sure. Black Lives Matter is not going anywhere. They're, they're certainly going to be a part of our conversation in law enforcement for, for a long period of time here. And we can see 
that there's a lot of issues we got to work on. Now, one of the things that I tell people about leadership, and this is hard as heck to do, but leadership sometimes is not really what you want to do. It's what you should do. When you're a leader, you have to consider the major, bigger picture of everything that's going on. And you have to take stands sometimes that are not going to be very popular. I do like what Ann said earlier about being authentic. You should always be authentic in your leadership. But you have to understand, like you said, Tom, and like Al said, and like Hobart said, and I'm sure Ann's going to say in a minute, you got to have a dialogue with everybody. And, and you may not like those things, but a leader in today's world is more inclusionary with dialogue than they are exclusionary with dialogue. And we've got to make sure we understand that as leaders, hey, we represent everybody. And it's not just one single purpose. Now, we're not talking about allowing people to loot and riot and cause destruction. That's a whole different world. We're talking about conversations. And, and I like what Al, the sheriff, said earlier. Man, if we don't talk about these things ourselves, we are never going to get answers to these questions. And that's why we ask these tough questions. And you want to take a swing at this? Black Lives Matter. Well, I do understand. Uh, again, I, I take it that these are going to be very individual decisions. Uh, I do know that what is being asked, what is being asked when someone says, will you say Black Lives Matter? What is it that they're actually asking you? Are you, are you answering a political question? Or are you answering what is the call of the question, which is social injustice? And so you need to know why and how you're going to answer that question. Should we be political as chiefs and sheriffs? No. But can you agree with what it's representing by saying Black Lives Matter? I can unequivocally say that I am in agreement with what Black Lives Matter means. And therefore, I could say it, but I do understand what is being heard is a political statement, and you have to be able to articulate uh, what is what is the call of the question you're asking me. What you're asking me is, do I believe that social injustice is occurring? Do I acknowledge it, and will I do something about it? That's really what's being asked. Uh, what's front and center right now in Seattle is that the big labor umbrella group, um, which is like the ACLU, they are going to kick out the Seattle Police Union unless their leadership says Black Lives Matter and they put it in writing. If they don't do it, they will be kicked out of the umbrella. Now, that's a big deal, but that's what they're asking. They want to hear the words because the words represent the social justice issues underneath it. Very so, well again, said. it's personal. It's personal. Very well, I mean, very well said. I mean, and that's why we're having these panelists and these folks discuss because we got to think deeper. These are much, much more complex issues than very a complex. simple answer that you can say this, that, or, but we're all getting asked that. And, and you know, whether you're, I, I don't care what size agency you lead or wherever you lead, you do have an internal morale and an external morale of the agency versus the community. And, and your job, it's really hard to balance those two. And like Hobart said, you know, when you look at 70% of the organization not agreeing with the decision he makes, I mean, that's significant. And he has 615 people. So that's not like, Absolutely. you know, that, that those are those are major decisions. Well, what, I do want to say something, Dean. Uh, what is happening here and what happened to you, uh, Hobart, 
you know that when you make a decision like that, you're going to be putting your legitimacy as a leader of your organization at risk. And, and that's why these are real life hard questions. Do you lose your team? And if a leader is all about having true followers, are you willing to lose your team of followers for making a decision that is a hard one, but one you believe in? Are you willing to lose it? And that's a very tough question for you. Legitimacy. And, and, and Alfonso said something earlier about education. We, we, we do have to educate each other on our beliefs. And, and I, I, would I would make a suggestion that police chiefs really look at Black Lives Matter manifesto just to be familiar with what it is they're saying. And you differentiate between, I think, what Ann said, the social justice issue. You know, you got to balance those things. And, and the manifesto of Black Lives Matter is is very anti-police. And, you know, from my reading of the manifesto. So in, in natural, my inclination is to definitely not be supportive of anti-police to the point of seeking violence and all those things. But there is a social justice issue. And I think, you know, those things are, 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 are far, far more important than any of those manifestos they may have. There's a social injustice that we've got to address as police leaders. All lives matter, black lives matter, blue lives matter. We all matter. And, but it can't just be rhetoric. It, it's got to be action too. And that inclusiveness is going to make that. So I'm going to move to another question and I want to, we're going now about an hour and 10 minutes and I want to keep our audience engaged with this. And so I'm going to ask one question. We're going to kind of wrap this up in that because what I really want to do is invite all of my panelists back. And we're going to do this again next week. Uh, don't really know the day, but we're going to have a continuation of this. And we're going to get more uh, inclusive in the race issue, more uh, direct in looking at some of those issues and how do we help folks maneuver around those and also react and act appropriately and do the things that need to be done as leaders. But I want to ask you this question, and this is something that is having a very difficult time with. And I want to hear what you guys and gals have to think about this. But we are absolutely risking a generation right now that's going to grow up and believe the police are bad people. We're risking a generation who are actually formulating their ideas and their perceptions of the police right now based upon what they're seeing. I've got very good friends of mine who have 14 and 15 year old daughters and sons, and they literally have called me and said, man, my kid right now has a very negative view of the police based upon what they're seeing. You got any ideas or suggestions? And, you know, we don't realize that, and, and Al said this, CNN, you know, NBC, all those, what the message they're giving out about police is really causing an entire generation to look at us much differently. So I want to ask you, and, you know, this will be our last question for today, and we're going to continue this again. And I encourage everybody to join us again next week as we continue these issues and talk head on with some of these very, very tough issues that are out there. But how do we start capturing or how do we prevent or I'm going to ask you our message to our young people. Well, how do we do that? By being transparent. I mean, we, we, we got to stop the rhetoric ourselves. We, we got, we call it, you know, uh, as you know, my chief deputy uh, is, is white and he's a Republican. I'm black and I'm a Democrat. He thinks I'm far left. I think he's far right. We get along very well, but we, we certainly have different 
ideologies about things in the world. He's extremely pro-police, and, and uh, it's not that I'm not pro-police. I, I believe I'm a man before I'm a sheriff or before I'm a, a peace officer, and I don't even think in terms of peace officer versus man. I, I'm here to serve mankind. I don't care who they are or what color they are. But it's not just the 24-hour news cycles and talking heads, no matter what your persuasion is, whether it's CNN, NBC, Fox News, it doesn't matter which one it is. Those 14 and 15-year-olds who are making up their minds about police based on what they see, they have Snapchat and Instagram and YouTube, and they see the videos. But we keep going back to our partisan politics and thinking that it's that liberal CNN that's causing our kids to believe that all police are bad. Or the other side is saying it's that Fox News that that is that is supporting Trump and and they're against us. And we that's still getting in the ring and going into your own corner. And and we're, we're refusing to see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is we have social injustices. You see more whites out protesting than you do blacks, and they're protesting black issues. There is a systemic problem, and we've got to deal with it, and, and it's there. And, and we keep dancing, uh, dancing around the issue, and until we have real conversations like what, what you've sponsored here today with, uh, with your network, we're just not going to fix the problem. I, I want to say something that, that you said, and you and I were in a class together and we did a master trainer course, and you said something that literally has stuck with me forever since you said this. And I think we have to, as law enforcement, we, we have to really look at this. You said there's not much learned or not much value in the second kick of the mule. And yeah. we as police departments have to understand and agencies that we keep getting kicked there's not much value in these kicks of the mule. We got to understand there's an issue out there for a large number of people who feel disenfranchised and feel not part of the solution. And they're not, we got to understand there's not much value in the second kick of the mule. Tom, anybody else, please answer that. Well, how do we, how do we get this gender? Yeah, go ahead, Al, go ahead. Yeah. I'll respond very quickly to that. You're right. There's nothing to be learned from the second kick of a mule. We should have learned from Rodney King that we need to professionalize our profession. And we hadn't done it. And then name the next guy, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, George Floyd, and and so many others that I can't name. How many times are we going to stand there and get kicked? Or are we just going to come together and say, let's get some standards and let's hold some folks accountable? And and we got to have some chiefs who've got to stand up and say, like, like Miss Ann that's on with us, you know, I have to lose my job to stand up for what I believe in, then by all means, I'm going to do it. And Hobart, I knew I loved you, but hearing your story and you taking a knee, even if it made 70% of your agency mad, if those folks are mad about that and you walked away from that incident and not a single officer got hurt and nobody, it's, it's almost like a hostage situation where the negotiator says what he thinks he needs to and you've got the, the, the head sniper guy who's ready to, to – uh, Ready to take the guy out, and at the de- debriefing, everybody's uh, got their own opinion about what should have been. But when you walk away from that hostage situation and nobody is hurt, everything's okay. 
I don't, I, I just don't understand this whole conversation about the popularity of the officers. Now I agree if you're a leader and you don't have any followers, we say you're just out taking a walk. But if you've got 70% that don't believe that what you did was right, those are probably not the servant that you want with you anyway. Good stuff. All right. Somebody else take like off. How, how do we get this generation? How do we say it? Go ahead, Mike. I'd like to add there, Chief. Um, to me, that message is better delivered by us officers, not tailored by the media, not by any of that, by going out there and actually talking to the kids. When they ask you questions, make time. Make, make time to have those interactions with them. I had the pleasure to actually coach a high school sport, and I can't tell you how many of my former players are calling me on a regular basis, texting me during everything that's going on, making sure I'm okay. And that bond is something that every officer out on the street needs to, to, to connect with the young people now and deliver the message in person. Don't let somebody else deliver it for you. And that's that whole entire buy-in and getting that credit in the bank. I have credit in the bank from the kids that I personally have contact with and the kids in the community that see me on a regular basis. And I stop and I talk to them and they ask some of those hard questions. And you have to deliver that message. You can no longer operate in a bubble and, and think that, you know, well, they'll just get it from somewhere else. Getting it from that officer on the street builds more trust with them than getting it from the media or reading in a book. Absolutely. Anybody else? Powerful, Mac. Um, Dean, you know, you, you say it regularly all the time. Relationships matter and leadership matters. I, I, I've been with you all over. And you say that all the time. I've had an opportunity to travel and work with people all over the world on a local, national, and federal level, an international level. 38 years in this business. My heart's really heavy right now to everybody on this, this webinar. But I will tell you this. You know what, young people, as Mac, you just talked about, if I could do one thing, and, and I tried to institute this when I was still the chief, we have to reach out and have those conversations with young people right now. Um, they're the people that are giving us a message, right? They're the ones that are out there, mostly peaceful protesters, that, that are saying they want change. And it's really tough and it's really hard, but it's who we are as a profession. And I'm very proud to be here today with all the people that are here, but all I know is we have to have those relationships. It's the one thing I've learned in 38 years, whether it's family, or when we put on that uniform. If we don't do that now, we're gonna lose a generation, my friends. I humbly believe that, and that's from traveling again um, all over the world. And, and I think that agencies that are doing that, people like Mac and others at every level, it's gotta start at the top, gotta have a good leader that supports that. We gotta get away from sometimes those radio calls and have the opportunity to go and have those dialogues, but now is the time to listen, and I'll end with that. Absolutely. And you want to say something, anybody, before we click out? Well, I, yes, the whole, what I think the way to not lose our younger generation is that it, the responsibility is on us for the culture change. That's what they're waiting for. They want to see it. They want yeah. a culture change. And if we can make that happen, then it by nature would restore a relationship, a proper relationship. Oh, absolutely. Hobart? Hey, I would just say that, uh, you know, Mac was mentioning coaching and 
uh, if you think about the struggles of a teacher or a coach, you only get a minimum amount of time with young people while everybody else is influencing them at home, whether it's parents, grandparents, brother, sister, whatever. Uh, but you still take those small bites at the apple. And uh, I think persistence will pay off and we just have to stay positive. And, you know, 26 years ago, uh, I think the chief put on one of our vans, Chief Crisp, who's moderating this thing today, uh, that our, our young people make up 26% of the population, but they're 100% of the future. I think we forget that a lot of times. Uh, we focus on what's right in front of us. Uh, and if we don't make that investment, if we don't make those deposits in our young people, then there's going to be nothing uh, to withdraw from that when we're expecting them to keep us up in some way and, uh, and take care of us. But uh, they are important, and I don't think we need to give up on them at all. We just have to take those small bites of that apple and just keep working hard and ultimately that, uh, you know, God's in control. So. Absolutely. Hobart, I want to thank you. I want to thank all of our panelists. What a great uh, webinar we've had today. I want to invite you back. We're going to do this again next week. We're going to talk about some really tough issues again. We're going to get deeper into the race issue. How do we answer some of these questions? I got a number of questions I think people want to hear from you. And I'll say, just like when you're a leader, you've got to think in three tenses. You think in past, present, future. And you have to worry about what the past was, but you have to understand you're in the present, but you got to plan for the future. And that's what we're doing here with this is we're, we have to, we have to recapture this generation of people. We cannot afford to have a generation of young people who don't believe that we're their advocate, we're their supporters, we're their protectors, and we care and love for them. We can't have that. That has never, ever occurred in history. When it does, it's not good. So we have the responsibility as leaders, not only to lead in the present, looking towards the future, but let's remember the past to help us avoid what that past is. And like Al said, we should learn. The second kick of a mule is absolutely, there's no value in it. Let's learn from this. Let's help each other. Have those discussions with your officers. Be authentic. Go to your folks. We are dealing with perilous times here. The only way we are going to recapture our narrative is to go on the offense without being offensive. Let's help each other do that. This Leaders Helping Leaders Network is all about us making those connections and always leaders helping leaders. Listen to our podcast. Hey, get on our website. We thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We have officially rolled out the Leaders Helping Leaders Network online e-learning accelerator class. Be sure to sign up before June 30th for the early bird special price of $3.97. Be one of the first 100 students to register, and you will also get three bonuses with the early bird deal. You can sign up for this course at www.e.lhln.org. Again, that's www.e.lhln.org. Sign up, grab your laptop, and get ready to change your life.